And the scripture reading this morning is Psalm 126, verses 1 through 6. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, who were like those who dreamed, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we were filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we ask that your name would be made holy in our presence through your word. And Father, I pray that you would let us see the beauty of your holiness. Let us sense the loveliness of your holiness and be drawn into it by the power of your word as we look at Jesus Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1912, a young man by the name of John Harper was 39 years old. He was a pastor, and his wife had passed away about six years before that, giving birth to their only daughter. I know Harper's name because I, I was a member of Moody Church in Chicago, and that's where I heard of him for the first time. He was known for preaching that called people to repentance and faith in Jesus. There were hundreds, if not thousands of people who heard the gospel as John Harper preached it and came to life in Christ because they understood the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and that he didn't just do that in a general sense, but that he did it for you. And he did it for me. And he did it for all of God's people. And in fact, he did it for the sin of the whole world. And John Harper would preach messages where people understood that with such clarity that they would repent and believe and find God's grace in a personal way. In 1912, Harper boarded an unsinkable ocean liner on the way to preach at Moody Church in Chicago. He had been there that previous November, and they'd had a series of revivals, and many people had come to Christ, and so they invited him to come back a second time to preach again, to spread that gospel again. And in 1912, John Harper died, along with 1,503 other people, when the Titanic went down. When you hear a tragedy like that, you think of a young man, his six-year-old daughter was one of the survivors, but she became an orphan because her father didn't make it. It's inevitable to ask, why? Why do things like that happen? In one sense, you would point at this man's life and many of the other passengers who died and say he was a good man. In a sense, he didn't deserve 
that. We could talk about personal tragedies that you have experienced. We could talk about car accidents and cancer. We could talk about heart attacks and other horrors that have claimed the lives of people we know and love. And the question that's often asked, what did they do to deserve that? And that question can be asked in two different ways. Sometimes it's assumed that there really was some awful sin. Those people must have done something and it's caught up with them. Sometimes people call that karma. Sometimes they think that God himself works in that way. And the assumption is when something terrible happens, those people must have been guilty. And so it's caught up with them. But sometimes that question is a sort of protest. Essentially saying, no one deserves that. What could they have done? Implying they didn't do anything to deserve that, and they were innocent and suffered anyway. That's the question that Jesus answers in our text this morning, and I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13 with me. I believe that it it will be helpful for you to see the words in the scriptures, and I want to encourage you to follow along with me as I read it. And as we listen to Jesus and what Jesus says in answer to that kind of question, what did those people do to deserve this? And I'm just going to read the first five verses of the text this morning. There were some present at that very same time, who told him, who told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all Likewise, perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. My first point this morning, based on these verses, is the truth that Jesus proclaimed that judgment is coming on those who do not repent. Judgment is coming on those who do not repent. Notice Jesus very clearly states... The people who suffer these tragedies, and we could talk about the Titanic, we could talk about the staggering six million Jews who died in the Holocaust, or we could talk about the thousands of people, 2,403 Americans who, who died at Pearl Harbor, or we could talk about the 2,977 victims of 9-11. Any of those tragedies... I believe Jesus would say, do not think that those people were worse sinners than anyone else. The frightening thing is, Jesus says, they were guilty and so are you. 
and so am I. You see, our default is to think they were innocent, and so any suffering is unfair and undeserved. And what Jesus is saying is, no one is innocent. Do not think that everyone else is fine because up until now they have escaped tragedy like this. Instead, be warned. He says it twice. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now think for just a minute. There are some who, by the grace of God, die peacefully. There's the the old joke that says, I, I... I want to die peacefully like my grandfather in his sleep and not like the six passengers in his car that were screaming as he drove off the road. Some people do die peacefully. So why is Jesus saying that all of us will experience this kind of tragedy unless we repent? I believe Jesus is pointing to the reality that there is a judgment that follows death. And the terrible tragedies that he describes are an indication of what life without God will be like for all of eternity. And and rather than dwelling on modern tragedies that we're familiar with, let's go back to the text for a moment and think for a moment about what Jesus is saying. The people come to him in verse 1, And they tell him about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So stop for a moment. These were people who were worshiping God, who had brought sacrifices as an act of worship. They were clearly devout. And in the act of worship, Pilate murdered them and mixed their blood with the blood of the sacrifices that they were offering. It is the equivalent of someone marching in a church and shooting the people who are there, which is recent for many of us. You remember the news stories where this happens. And you wonder, those people were worshiping God. How could God have let this happen? And Jesus says, in that tragedy, in that moment, that terror And that violence is like the eternal, unending judgment of God. And Jesus says, repent, repent. He does not want you to experience that. He does not want me to experience that. The frightening thing, Jesus says that our perishing is like those horrible, violent deaths. And I want to get something straight right now, because as I talk briefly about the judgment of God and the reality of pain for all of eternity away from God, I want to say something very clearly. God is not a monster. God is not a monster. He's not two-faced, as if he has a good side and a dark side. Everything that God does is right. God is not tempted by evil, and nothing he does is evil. So how is it that a good God will judge people? The biblical answer to that question is God's wrath is rooted in his love. There's a story from a few years ago of a dad in Texas that stumbled into his barn and saw someone abusing his little daughter. 
And that dad, in shock and horror and rage, beat the abuser until he died. And when the police officers came, they didn't even arrest him. Because what he had done was the natural reaction in trying to protect someone you love from something horrible and something awful. That man's wrath was a product of his love. He put an end to abuse and punished the abuser. And that is what God does because he is a God of love. And there's, a song, there's a songwriter by the name of Andrew Peterson. He's a great singer-songwriter. He, he's a, a, you know, if, if you like guitar music, he's a little bit like somebody like a, um, like a James Taylor, except he, he knows the Lord and has just the best lyrics. And I want to read you a verse to one of his songs called Rise Up. Because what he does is he takes that kind of love of the Father to put an end to evil. And he helps us appreciate who God is in his judgment. And he writes this. He said, If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. The day of his return is coming. And if Jesus tarries and does not come before you die, you will give account for all that you've done before God. And Jesus' heart is not to condemn you. Jesus' heart is to save you from this kind of wrath. There's no other God that offers forgiveness to guilty people. Jesus is teaching that we deserve that kind of wrath and punishment, even though we generally think we're pretty good. In his love, Jesus is warning that we must repent of our sins. No one wants God to ignore terrible things when we hear about them in the news or when we see them in other people. There's a, a theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf. He and many of the people he knew and loved and his family were living during the wars that took place in Croatia. He said over 300,000 people were killed in those wars. He said his hometown was destroyed and the shells would just keep coming and they would not stop. And he said he realized at that time that he could not believe in a God who was not angry at the evil and violence that takes place in our world. That he longed for God to punish those who were committing such evil atrocities. And he said this in particular, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. It's not that he's mostly love and has this little wrathful part that he can't just tame. He said, he is wrathful because he is love. 
And no one wants God to ignore the terrible things that we read about and hear about. We long for his justice when we see evil out there in the world. The problem is, we're blind to the evil in our hearts. But Jesus will not let us stay blind. He warns you and he warns me that everyone will likewise perish unless we repent. And he invites us to that repentance. And if you wonder, why do these tragedies continue to happen? Just in the past five years, I can think of two church shootings, one in Virginia and one in Texas. Why does it keep happening? Well, the answer is, judgment is coming, but God's patience is present. God's patience is here right now. Look with me at verses 6 through 9 and see how Jesus explains this. It says, And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it, be used, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, leave it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now what is Jesus talking about with this image of a fig tree? The trees throughout the Bible, they often represent nations. And here, Jesus has had a ministry, especially to God's people in Israel. And we're going to see that the people of Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so while Jesus is ministering, God is having patience with them. And he is offering them salvation. He is offering them their king. But as they reject him, there is nothing left but the judgment of God. But currently, that judgment is delayed. God was patient on them. We're going to see in Luke chapter 19 especially, Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem will be totally destroyed. That God's patience on them would end and through a lot of violence the city itself would be reduced to rubble and hundreds, if not thousands, would die as a result of their rejection of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't say that vindictively. And I want to make this very clear. He wept over the city that rejected him. He weeps at the end of chapter 13, and he weeps at the end of chapter 19, and he longs for them to find forgiveness for their sins, but they will not do it. That was not only true of the people of Jerusalem, it's also true today. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's not only true in Jesus' day with the people he preached to, that's true today. And in Peter's days, at the end of his life, as he wrote Second Peter, people were wondering, why hadn't Jesus returned yet? And many people today ask the same question, where is Jesus? And Peter says, the reason he's not returned is God is exercising patience. 
you can see his just wrath in the terrible tragedies that happen and the warnings that say, check your heart. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Are your sins forgiven? Are you right with God? Because right now, God's patience is present, but it will not last. The question is, what do we do now while God is patient? And I want to give two answers. Number one, the most obvious is repent. Acknowledge your sin before God and ask for his forgiveness. Turn away from your sin. Follow the Lord in a life of obedience. If you've never been baptized, the way you say, my life belongs to Jesus, is you be baptized. And you begin to learn and grow in your walk with Christ as you learn what he says in his word, as you grow with other believers at a church. But the other thing that we do while God is exercising patience is we emphasize the word of God. And here's why. Notice the very next section, and we'll read all of it in just a second, but the very next section describes Jesus' teaching. Verse 10 says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And you can see the emphasis on Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry all throughout the gospel. He is passionate about helping people understand the word of God. And he believes that it's the word of God that point people to who he truly is. So he uses the Old Testament so that people understand that he is the Messiah who will bear the sins of the people. And he uses God's word to help people understand the commands of God and the guilt that all of us live in because we've broken God's commands and the hope that we have because he is the Messiah who will bear the sins of the people. Jesus emphasizes teaching and as God is patient, we ought to emphasize the same sort of teaching. We ought to humbly sit under the word of God and we ought to invite other people to sit under the word of God too. And and you can do this in ways, if you know people that will not come to church, there are great books that you can give them. And if they won't read books, there are short little audio podcasts that you can share them. And if you say, I don't know what a podcast is or how to do that, I will help you. Because people will listen to a two-minute clip when they won't listen to a 30-minute sermon. But the most effective and the best way to share the good news of Jesus is to tell someone what Jesus has done for you. If you can explain, I understood that I was guilty, but Jesus took my place, and now I know that God loves me, and God forgave me, that's the best way to tell someone about the good news of Jesus. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. And that's what happens in this text here. So follow along with me. As Jesus is teaching, let's look at the division that happens through the teaching and ministry of Jesus. Read with me starting in verse 10. It says, Now as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. 
and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Now this, this passage, this is showing you what salvation is like. It's a literal event. Jesus really set this woman free from an 18-year bondage, from a disability that crippled her. But in doing that miracle, Jesus is restoring a kind of health that God created us to have. He's showing you what salvation is like. When you repent and God forgives you, he restores you to a relationship with the Father. So you experience a closeness and a joy that was always intended to be yours. So when Jesus warns you, repent or you will all likewise perish, he's also inviting you in to the goodness of the Father, to health and joy and blessing. And, and look, he doesn't always heal us today. He didn't always heal everyone when he walked the earth. But he did this to show you what salvation is like. And, and do you remember last week, I talked about the division that happens as people follow Jesus. Jesus said, do not think I came to bring peace but a sword. And he said that he came to bring division. It's so shocking. This passage shows the division. He heals a woman and some people have the gall to say, don't do that on the Sabbath. And the division that he warned about is present in his own ministry. And so the people that reject the salvation he's offered, they are the people who will perish in their sins and experience the wrath of God. The division is right now. Notice, though, it says, All the people rejoiced. As you come to Christ and experience your sins forgiven, and as you experience the joy of obedience and of walking by faith, and seeing what God is doing, not just back then, but today, you can experience the same joy. But here's the thing. Jesus has said that judgment is coming. He's warned that division is present so how is it possible for us to maintain that joy? Well, the last thing he says is that victory is certain. Victory is certain because it's in what Jesus did for us. Now let's look at these verses and then I want to say just a word about him. He says, verse 18, he said, therefore, in other words, because some people believed while people opposed him and hated what he did, he tells two parables. He says, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? 
Well, it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. In both of those analogies, both of those comparisons, Jesus says, the kingdom of God, for now, is invisible. A man takes one of the smallest seeds in the world and plants it in the ground, and you can't even see it. But Jesus says, it will grow. Not only will it grow, it'll grow into a monster of a tree so large that the birds of the air will make nests in its branches. Now, that might not be very meaningful unless you've read your Old Testament. See, God describes two different massive kingdoms in terms of being a huge tree that the nations find shelter in. He does it in Daniel when he describes how God blessed Babylon and made it grow for a time so that the whole world was blessed through its wealth. And he does it in Ezekiel. And the message of the Old Testament is God is the God of all of the nations. And if anyone prospers, it's because God has caused them to prosper. And that analogy of that tree that's healthy, that provides shade, that provides shelter, that picture would have been present in the minds of his listeners. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is invisible right now. You can't see it. And in fact, people are opposed to it and oppressing it. But the kingdom of God is going to grow. It will grow. And it will be so large that all of the nations will find shelter in its shade. And it's inevitable. It will happen. And in the same way, he says, it's, it's like leaven. Now, at this day, you know, if we use yeast, we buy it in a jar. It comes like, you know, it's just a little jar or the little packets. You know, if you make pizza dough, you tear the packet open, dump it in. That's not how they used yeast back in Jesus' day, this was more like a sourdough starter. So you had a little bit of of bread, and what you would do is you take that little piece of dough, and you would mix it in with your fresh flour and water and what other ingredients you would use. And that little little bit of bread that was alive would permeate everything as the bacteria and cultures would grow so that the whole lump of dough became leavened. It was all alive, and it started small, and it was buried, and it was hidden, but it permeated the dough and went everywhere. Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is like. So, there will be people who oppose it, but in the end, the kingdom of God is the only thing that matters. So you remember the passage that Kent read before I came up to preach. The psalm writer said, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Well, I want to say to you today, if you are sowing in tears, if you've experienced tragedy, if you have experienced sorrow in your own heart and in your own family, be encouraged if your faith is in Christ. Because the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus could say this with such confidence because he knew the Father. And he knew that the kingdom would be purchased with his blood. And when he rose from the dead, that was a down payment 
of the future of God's kingdom. And so since we've seen the victory of God in the resurrection, we have complete assurance that God's kingdom will be built. So what do we do with this truth? Well, number one, take the warnings to heart. Check your own heart. Make sure that you have experienced the forgiveness of God. And if you need to be baptized, I would encourage you, talk to me today. Say, I want to dedicate my life to Christ. I want to show publicly that I believe Jesus is the Savior. And follow Him with your life. Number two, sometimes we can be ashamed of God when we talk about His judgment. We talk about God as a God of love, and oh yeah, there's this other part where... Don't do that. If you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, and and you feel like you need to apologize for what God says He will do, let me encourage you to take another look at the love of God. Understand His judgment and His wrath come from His love. And so I want to encourage you this morning, say, I'm sorry, God, I've misunderstood who you are. And I want to know your love better. And I believe there's a healthy sort of repentance that comes from understanding that God is better than you ever thought he was. Out of that, let me urge you to praise your Savior. Look, look again at the verse. It says, All the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by Jesus. So rejoice. Sing with enthusiasm. And don't just do it on Sunday, do it every day. Be excited that Jesus is the kind of Savior that sets us free from our disabilities. He forgives our sins, He heals our diseases. That's the blessing that God has for everyone who trusts in Him. So praise Him. Be comforted and be hopeful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask that we would just be ready. I pray that you would help us to be faithful in confessing sin. And Lord, help us to hold this picture of Jesus high, that we would know him as a healer, that we would know him as a savior. And I pray that you would lead us out in joy. Let us see the kingdom growing, Lord, even if it's hidden now. I pray that you let us see our loved ones come to know Christ, our neighbors, the people that we don't even know in the area. I ask that you would let us see your kingdom growing here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.